Hi. Hi, this is Between the Vines, and that is Chrissy, and this is Jackie. Welcome to the first installment of our Black Lives Matter miniseries. Yay! Hey, we've been talking, we have been talking about this for a little while. Um, it was something that we wanted to make sure we did right, um, which is, it took, it was kind of fun. It was like, we got to work on a poetry mini so together for a change, which was like, it's just interesting. Different. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Very different. So, um, we basically, this is going to be a mini, mini series of poetry by black poets throughout the years. Yay! So, um, we're starting with like, this episode is going to cover the 1700s and 1800s. And then as time goes on, of course, there are more and more and more, um, black poets. Not necessarily that there are more, but there's more information about them and there's like more records kept about them and so we want to make sure that we include as many voices as possible so those later episodes are going to be split up a little bit more we'll cover um, certain decades more in depth than others um things like the harlem renaissance and Mm -hmm. different schools of poetry that were um specifically started by black poets um so today we're going to start with like the early early people um I think it's going to be a little long. I'm sorry, but it, there's a lot of information and, and, it's and we want to make sure important. it's all important. Exactly. Yeah. So this is one of the things that we talked about when, um, when the black lives matter movement really started picking up speed that we wanted to be able to do our part and use our platform for good. Um, and kind of like we talked about in our episode about, um, the murder of Roger Ackroyd, this is one of the ways that we feel we can be part of the conversation. Um, and so we're going to get started, I think, right? Yeah. Is there anything you want to add? Um, no, except um, if you want to learn, um, if you want to read more about the poets we're going to be talking about, we have a Black Lives Matter page on our website. Yes. Um, and actually, now that you say that, I'm going to try and post... Um, because right now that is a list of books that would be really great places for you to start if you're trying to learn a little bit more about the history of racism in America. Um, but we have made that a permanent page on our website because we want to keep updating it with more resources as we find them. So we're actually only going to cover four poets in this episode, but there's a big list of poets at the end of the episode, and we'll go ahead and post all of them on Mm -hmm. that page with links to their bios and their poetry so that you can learn a little bit more about their poetry um, and their stories as they tell them, because, you know, we can only do so much. So. Absolutely. um, Okay. Are you ready to get started? Yeah. And I believe you're first. I am first. Um, we're not really going in chronological order. We're just going, we're going to, I'm going to start and then we'll flip flop. Um, each of us pick two. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first poet is Phyllis Wheatley. So Phyllis Wheatley was born in 1953. She died in, whoa, sorry, 1753. We're doing she great. died in 1784. We've already been drinking for an hour. Sorry, guys. <laughs> um, okay, so... I got most of my information from the Poetry Foundation. Um, It's actually an article that was written by Sandra A. O'Neill from Emory University. Um, She wrote what is listed on Phyllis Wheatley's Poetry Foundation page. I have cut it down a lot because it was very long. 
it's still about two to two and a half to three pages. So I'm going to do my best to read through it. Um, but I tried to keep like the most important stuff. Um, and if you want to read the whole thing, definitely make sure to check out her, her poetry foundation page, but there was a lot of really good information. So, um, I wanted to do her justice. Um, she was basically the first African American poet to be published ever. So we wanted to make sure that we covered her. Um, so Phyllis Wheatley, 1753 to 1784. And I'm just going to read through this because Sandra said it so much better than I could have. Um, and I'll let you know when, when I have kind of shortened things and when I'm quoting directly, but most of this is a direct quote from Sandra A. O'Neill. So, although she was an African slave, Phyllis Wheatley was one of the best known poets in pre 19th century America. Educated and enslaved in the household of prominent Boston commercialist John Wheatley, lionized in New England and England, with presses in both places publishing her poems, and paraded before the New Republic's political leadership and the old empire's aristocracy, Wheatley was, Wheatley was the abolitionist's illustrative testimony that blacks could be both artistic and intellectual. Her name was a household word among literate colonists and her achievements a catalyst for the fledgling anti-slavery movement. Wheatley was seized from Senegal slash Gambia, West Africa, when she was about seven years old. She was purchased by John and Susanna Wheatley of Boston, who, upon discovering the girl's precociousness, taught her to read and write. She studied the Bible, astronomy, geography, history, British literature, and the Greek and Latin classics of Virgil, Ovid, Terence, and Homer. Her piece, an ele elegiac? Elegiac? Yeah, elegiac elegiac poem on the death of that celebrated divine and eminent servant of Jesus Christ, the Reverend and learned George Whitefield, 1770, brought Wheatley national renown. Published as a broadside and a pamphlet in Boston, Newport, and P Philadelphia, the poem was published with Ebenezer Pemberton's funeral sermon for Whitefield in London in 1771, bringing her international acclaim. By the time she was 18, Wheatley had gathered a collection of 28 poems for which she, with the help of Mrs. Wheatley, ran advertisements for subscribers in Boston newspapers in February 1772. When the colonists were apparently unwilling to support literature by an African, she and the Wheatleys turned in frustration to London for a publisher. Wheatley left for London on May 8, 1771, accompanied by the son of her masters. The now celebrated poetess was welcomed by several dignitaries, including Benjamin Franklin. While Wheatley was recrossing the Atlantic to reach Mrs. Wheatley, who at the summer's end had become seriously ill, the first edition of poems on various subjects, religious and moral, was being circulated. The first volume of poetry by an African American published in modern times. Poems on various subjects revealed that Wheatley's favorite poetic form was the couplet, both iambic pentameter and heroic. More than one-third of her canon is composed of elegies, poems on the death of noted persons, friends, or even strangers whose loved ones employed the poet. The, poem that best demonstrate, the poems that best demonstrate her abilities and are most often questioned by detractors are those that employ classical themes as well as techniques. In addition to classical and neoclassical techniques, Wheatley applied biblical symbolism to evangelize and to comment on slavery. The remainder of Wheatley's themes can be classified as celebrations of America. 
She was the first to applaud this nation as glorious Columbia, and that in a letter to George Washington, with whom she had corresponded and whom she was later privileged to meet. Wheatley was freed some three months before Mrs. Wheatley died on March 3, 1774. Although many British editorials castigated the Wheatleys for keeping Wheatley in slavery while presenting her to London as the African genius, the family had provided an ambiguous haven for the poet. Wheatley was kept in a servant's place, a respectable arm's length from the Wheatley's genteel circles, but she had experienced neither slavery's treacherous demands nor the harsh economic exclusions pervasive in a free black existence. With the death of her benefactor, Wheatley slipped towards this tenuous life. On April 1st, 1778, despite the skepticism and disapproval of some of her closest friends, Wheatley married John Peters, whom she had known for some five years. A free black, Peters evidently aspired to entrepreneurial and professional greatness. And I, I abridged here a little bit just because, you know, her husband is not her. Um, he did a lot of things, none of them very well, and they were very poor. Wheatley would work to support their three children while her husband dodged creditors. She fell ill and suffered due to their living conditions, and it was a far fall for such a highly renowned poet. Um, and then this is again Sandra O'Neill. Yet throughout these lean years, Wheatley continued to write and publish her poems and to maintain, though on a much more limited scale, her international correspondence. During the year of her death, 1784, she was able to publish, under the name Phyllis Peters, a masterful 64-line poem in a pamphlet entitled Liberty and Peace, which hailed America as Columbia victorious over Britannia law. Phyllis Wheatley died uncared for and alone. Her husband was in jail at the time, forced into incarceration as means to repay his debts. Their last surviving child died in time to be buried with his mother. Recent scholarship shows that Wheatley wrote perhaps 145 poems, most of which would have been published if the encouragers she'd begged for had come forth to support the second volume. But this artistic heritage is now lost, probably abandoned during Peter's quest for subsistence after her death. Two of the greatest influences on Phyllis Wheatley's thought and poet poetry were the Bible and 18th century evangelical Christianity, but until fairly recently, Wheatley's critics did not consider her use of biblical illusion nor its symbolic application as a statement against slavery. She often spoke in explicit biblical language designed to move church members to decisive action. In the past 10 years, Wheatley scholars have uncovered poems, letters, and more facts about her life and her association with 18th century black abolitionists. They have also charted her notable use of classicism and have explicated the sociological intent of her biblical illusions. All this research and interpretation has proven Wheatley's disdain for the institution of slavery and her use of art to undermine its practice. Before the end of this century, the full aesthetic, political, and religious implications of Wheatley's art and even more salient facts about her life and works will surely be known and celebrated by all who study the 18th century and by all who revere this woman, a most important poet in the American literary canon. Sandra A. O'Neill, Emory University. So, like I said, that was a lot. I'm sorry. No, it was to just, so like, good to read all of that. Read at you. Um, like I said, it was... That, that was longer than most of the blog posts that I write for my job. Um, and that was a bridge. That was, like I said, um, I did try to implicate where I, or sorry, indicate where I abridged and where I kind of 
paraphrased, but there are a couple, there, there's a lot more information on her Poetry Foundation, um, website. So make sure you check it out. Um, but it seems important. Um, she was actually, one of the things I cut out was that she was, um, she was, she was purchased for very little money because she was so young and she wasn't fit for work. And the slave owner or the, the slave trader who was trying to sell her basically was like, I'm pretty sure this girl's going to die, but I want to make money off of her. And mm -hmm. so Susanna Wheatley, the, um, the mistress of the house, I guess you should, you could say, um, was like, yeah, I'll, I'll take her. I need, um, someone to help in the house. And so she bought her for very little money. Um, and yet she was extremely smart. And despite the fact that she, she had a lot more opportunity to learn, to read and write and all of that, um, than a lot of slaves did, she really wanted more academic challenge. She like, she was very much interested in learning and in writing and reading. And, um, I thought it was really interesting that it was like, yeah, by slaves, um, if you're measuring by other slaves, measuring her against other slaves, yeah, she was pretty privileged, but she also, like, she... Was enslaved. <laughs> was enslaved, like, exactly. So, um, I don't know, I just, I thought it was interesting to learn more about her, because you hear about her as, like, you know, she's the fir first black poet, and um, to really hear her story in her life, I thought that was important, so I yeah. didn't want to... I didn't want to cut too much out. So. No, definitely. And I mean, and her notoriety is indicative of her contribution to, you know, poetry and writings in the black community. I, I told Solomon, mm -hmm. you know, I was like, we decided to do a Black Lives Matter miniseries that we're going to feature black poets and writings. And he was like, oh, so you're going to do Phyllis Wheatley? And I was like, <laughs> yes, that's the first one we will do. So Actually, it, yes. it's just her claim to fame is fair and true. Exactly. So I'm going to read two of her poems. Um, the first one is called On Virtue, and the second one is A Hymn to the Evening. So here is On Virtue. O thou bright jewel in my aim, I strive to comprehend thee. Thine own words declare wisdom is higher than a fool can reach. I cease to wonder and no more attempt thine height to explore or fathom thy profound. But O my soul, sink not into despair. Virtue is near thee, and with gentle hand would now embrace thee, hovers o'er thine head. Fain would the heaven-born soul with her converse, then seek, then court her for her promised bliss. Auspicious queen, thine heavenly pinions spread, and lead celestial chastity along. Lo, now her sacred retinue descends. Arrayed in glory from the orbs above, attend me, virtue, through my youthful years. Oh, leave me not to the false joys of time, but guide my steps to endless life and bliss. Greatness or goodness, say what I shall call thee. To give, an, to give an higher appellation still, teach me a better strain, a nobler lay, O thou enthroned with cherubs in the realms of day. Beautiful. It's definitely older language. It's, oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. A little hard for my, my wine my wine tongue. <laughs> that fits. I accept that. Um, but I'm doing my best. Okay. Selected poem number two, A Hymn to the Evening. Soon as the sun forsook the eastern main, the pealing thunder shook the heavenly plain. Majestic grandeur from the zephyr's wing exhales the incense of, blo of the blooming spring. 
Soft pearl the streams, the birds renew their notes, and through the air their mingled music floats. Through all the heavens what beauteous dyes are spread, but the west glories in the deepest red. Whoop, in the deepest red. So may our breasts with every virtue glow, the living temples of our God below, filled with the praise of him who gives the light and draws the sable curtains of the night. Let placid slumbers soothe each weary mind at morn to wake more heavenly, more refined. So shall the labors of the day begin, more pure, more guarded from the snares of sin. Night's leaden scepter seals my drowsy eyes, then cease my song till fair Aurora rise. I really like that one. It was my favorite. I picked that one first. <laughs> yeah, I really do. I love that. Um, she's got plenty of poems out there, but um, there's actually only five or six available through the po- Poetry Foundation. Um, so definitely do a little bit more research. Um, there's, she's, I love her writing. I think it's really like beautiful and classic. And I actually reading through some of her stuff, I could see what, um, Sandra O'Neill was talking about in terms of like detractors saying, you know, she's, she wasn't anti-slavery. She wasn't abolitionist because she talks a lot about how, um, Christianity changed her life and how Africans should be also allowed to take part in Christianity and to worship Jesus and that sort of thing. And it's like, I mean, yeah, but they also, there, there's a lot of problematic history surrounding Christians and missionaries. Um, and so that conversation, I see where that came from. Um, but I think that it doesn't diminish the beauty of her, her work or her words. Mm -hmm. Um, and I really, I like what Sandra O'Neill said about how, as more information about her work emerges, the more clear it is that she is, you know, anti-slavery abolitionist, um, and all that. So that's Phyllis Wheatley. Wonderful. Beautiful. I don't actually know if I've ever, truly read her poems you know from from everything we know about her through our own education i don't know if i've ever actually sat down and read through her poems so this i was really glad to have this opportunity yeah. exactly that's all why right. we're doing this exactly all right the next one we're going to talk about is james madison bell he was born in 1826 and died in 1902 um fun fact there's actually not a lot about um, his family and his background. We were kind of talking earlier how as history moves forward and we become more present, we just have better record keeping. Um, and this is an example of one that doesn't have a lot of record keeping because of the time. So there's actually not a lot of information on him. But what I did find, I, I pulled from blackpast.com, mypoeticside.com, the Poetry Foundation, and Wikipedia. Um, so all of this is, all of the information pulled from there, it's not my own writing. Uh, James Madison Bell was an African-American poet who lived at a turbulent time in the history of the United States, his life spanning three quarters of the 19th century and just spilling over into the 20th. He was actively involved in the growing movement to abolish slavery, and his oratory and written words were powerful tools used in this struggle. Nothing is known of Bell's family or background other than that he was born a free black man in Ohio on April 3, 1826. He had little opportunity to enjoy an education, and his first job was working as a plasterer, where he was in partnership with with his brother-in-law, working in Cincinnati. 
They were very good at it and won several prestigious contracts. He worked hard to rectify what he had missed out on at school by attending evening classes at the Cincinnati High School for Colored People. In some of his lessons, he heard about the ever-expanding abolitionist movement and had a hunger to learn more. He married in 1847, and his wife bore him <laughs> several ch seven children. He did not have a chance to make a political mark on things until the family moved to Canada in 1854, setting up home in Ontario. This was one of the prominent stops on the so-called Underground Railroad that we've all literally learned about forever. Um, it was a means for escaping slaves to flee from the United States to freedom in Canada. He soon came across the insurrectionist John Brown, whose actions, especially the raiding of the armory at Harper's Ferry in 1859, were contributory factors to the country going into all-out civil war. Bell was on the move again in 1860, where he took his civil rights campaigning to San Francisco. His poetry was becoming popular, and history shows that he was one of the best-known black poets of that century. Much of his work, understandably, was about conflict and social injustice. Examples of this type of poetry include Poem, which is about the assassination of Lincoln, The Day and the War, and The Triumph of Liberty, yet he didn't write exclusively about those subjects. Bell was on the move again after, this poet, after these poems, returning to Cincinnati where more work was needed in his anti-slavery campaigning. He stood up in front of often hostile audiences to speak very convincingly about the subject. He read out his poem, The Day in the War, at a well-attended gathering at Platts Hall in Cincinnati in January 1864. The gathering was in celebration of the first anniversary of President Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. His poem was dedicated to his late friend John Brown, who had, by now, been executed for his crimes, in particular the raid on the federal arsenal at Harper's Ferry. There was time for church activities in Bell's busy schedule, and he was appointed superintendent of the African Methodist Episcopal AME Church Sunday School in 1870. He held that post for three years. He lost his wife and the oldest of his sons in 1874 and decided to move his family on again, this time settling in Toledo, Ohio. He still carried on with his public speaking, and in 1901, he arranged the publication of some of his best work under the title The Poetical Works of James Madison Bell. James Madison Bell died in Toledo at the age of 76, sometime during the year 1902. His constant campaigning and incessant traveling must have eventually caught up with him. And that is what I found on James Madison Bell. And I one like of the him. things I, I really liked about what I was finding is that some of his most famous poems and what contributed to changing society's mind and shaping the nation into what it is today came after the Emancipation Proclamation because most states weren't actually free until two years after the Emancipation Proclamation. So it's not like Lincoln made his address and suddenly all of slaves, all slaves were freed. You know, they had to go and be like, hello, do you have anyone in there? Literally, please let them go. So oh, I think it's, a, it's important to note that his most of his famous poems came from in between the Emancipation Proclamation and the true freedom of slaves in, during that time. That is super interesting. Yeah. I didn't, I'd never really thought about the fact that, like, I mean, clearly it's not like everyone would just, you, you can't even force people to wear masks right now during right. a freaking pandemic. How are you going to force them to free their slaves immediately just by saying they have to free their slaves? Like, right. that is such a good point that I, in my own ignorance, had never even thought about, you know? I mean, we are privileged to live, to not live with the, with the need to know that, you know? Yeah. Um, but that's why we're doing this. Exactly. So why did you pick him, by the way? Did you like his style or? His poems were the main reason I chose him. 
Um, and okay. I think you will, you'll see why. I think you will also like his poems. Um, okay. The first one is called Paddle Your Own Canoe. Okay. A red chief dwelling near a lake beneath a western sky felt soon his hold on life must break and he lay down and die. He called around his wigwam door, his warriors brave and true, and gave to each a tiny oar, saying, Paddle your own canoe. For I, your brave, who taught the bow and how to poise the dart and how the bearded shaft to throw with many a needful art. Oh, apparently it was bow, not bow. Sorry. <laughs> Um, with many a needful art, am full of years and cannot stand, as I were wont to do, a soon must try the spirit land, so paddle your own canoe. Then lowly bowed e bowed each warrior's head, and a deep long sigh he drew. They started forth with measured tread to paddle their own canoe. High rose the waves on either side, loud screamed the wild sea mew, but not could daunt their warrior pride, they paddled their own canoe. O'er rugged heights they onward sped, and mazy forests through, and wheresoe'er their duty led, they paddled their own canoe. And oft in fancy's bark they'd speed, back through the waters blue, and once again their chieftain heed, saying, paddle your own canoe. Should friends forsake, should fortune fail, or loved ones prove untrue, then nerve your heart and courage take, and paddle your own canoe. For the world with many a snare is set, for the honest and the true, and they alone escape the net who paddle their own canoe. Oh, right? I love that poem. I read wow. this poem and was like, whoever this is, I call them. <laughs> Dips. Dips. Yeah, you picked him really quickly. Yeah, I... You picked him really fast. This was this must be one of his most famous poems because it was um, it's among the first that pop up if you just type in his name. It's like his bio and also paddle your own canoe. Mm. Um, I don't think this necessarily, I tried to find like professional analyses of this poem and it seemed that there wasn't a direct parallel to his writings about slavery and him being an activist. But what I liked about it is that, you know, Paddle Your Own Canoe is like about independence, but it's often in context, it talks about gaining independence from your oppressors or from someone who's hurting you or getting out under the thumb of somebody. And this was more like a parting of a dear friend or someone you lean on to trust. And I liked, I, I liked the different context because I don't think you see that often when you're talking about independence. Yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah. The second Ooh. poem is called What Shall We Do With the Contrabands? Shall we arm them? Yes, arm them. Give to each man a rifle, a musket, a cutlass, or sword. Then on the charge, let them war in the van, where each may confront with his merciless lord and purge from their race in the eyes of the brave the stigma and scorn now attending the slave. I would not have the wrath of the rebels to cease, their hope to grow weak nor their courage to wane, till the contrabands join in securing a peace whose glory shall vanish the last galling chain and win for their race an undying respect in the land of their prayers, their tears, and neglect. Is the war won for freedom? Then why, tell me why, should the wronged and oppressed be debarred from the fight? Does not reason suggest it were noble to die in the act of supplanting a wrong for the right? Then lead to the charge, for the end is not far, when the contraband hosts are enrolled in the war. Wow. This one was analyzed pretty well. Uh, in this piece, Bell is suggesting that the slaves who flee to the Union states will actually become part of the Liberating Army as a way to literally like help the Union states win the Civil War. 
He wrote this in the 1830s or 40s when a common belief was that the actions of slaves fleeing from their oppressors would be the only, would be one of the main things to help bring transformation. So there was, like, a real, like, for the Union states in, like, the 20s, it was, like, a real belief that this might not end well for slaves. And in the 30s and 40s, when things were kind of looking upright, they were like, wait a minute, we, you know, like, we're not just going to sit down and take it. Um, so the, in this poem, he's like, listen, like, we got this. Let's do it. I really like that. I think, um, I mean, on a, on a strategic level, you know, use every every resource that you have, but also the idea that just because you've won your own fight doesn't mean you can't help fight for others. Right. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's a really um, valuable lesson that... Um, I think, I think we've talked about this before, me, you, and Sarah in particular about, um, how those who have experienced poverty are more likely to donate money to help the poor. Um, when you've been there, you understand how close you are to that state. And so I think the idea of freed slaves then turning around and saying, you know, just because I'm free now doesn't mean I can't help you earn your freedom too. Um, I think that's a really beautiful sentiment and I really, I like the poem a lot. It reminds me of, um, and this is just because I am a theater kid. It reminds me of Hamilton and about how Lawrence is like, we need to end slavery and, and help them join the fight and help them, you know, that, that's what I was thinking of when you were reading it. So Yes, he's one of my favorites, and all of his poems are very similar in rhythm and style. So if you liked this, you will like his other stuff. So I implore you to go look him up. That is, that's it. That's all I have. That's James Madison Bell. James Madison Bell. I love it. All right, well, my next poet is Timothy Thomas Fortune. Um, Born 1856 and died in 1928. Um... Again, this, I'm actually going to read his bio directly from the Poetry Foundation. Um, you make me feel like I probably should have done a little bit more research because you have so many different sources, but um, no, no, I no, felt no. I, this is like 30. I literally did this when you said, well, never mind. I'll talk to you about that later, but okay. Okay. Um, so Timothy Thomas Fortune, again, this is his bio according to the Poetry Foundation, Um, Born a slave in Mariana, Florida, poet, editor, and journalist Timothy Thomas Fortune received less than three years of formal early education. He worked as a typesetter, Florida Senate page, and teacher before briefly studying law at Howard University. In 1877, Fortune married Caroline Charlotte Smiley, and they went on to raise five children together. In 1879, he began what was to be a 50-year career in journalism, starting during which he worked as an editor, printer, and writer dedicated to African-American rights. For over 20 years, he was the editor of a newspaper first known as the New York Globe, then renamed The Freeman, and finally The New York Age, where he published the work of Ida B. Wells and other civil rights activists. In 1890, Fortune co-founded the National Afro-American League, one of the first civil rights organizations in the United States. Fortune's poetry, collected in Dreams of Life miscellaneous poems, often explores romantic love, pride, and racial injustice. Fortune died in Philadelphia in 1928. 
so journalism is so important I have, oh my god that's incredible yes so I chose Timothy Thomas Fortune partially because I liked his poetry but also because I wanted to make sure that I picked a poet who had um an impact and who um you know he he was he was a free man but I think that and I've had this conversation a lot lately about the idea of journalism um as it should be in the ideal um that journalists are supposed to be completely unbiased and journalists are supposed to tell the stories of those who don't have a voice for themselves and the reason I didn't go into journalism, although I really love writing and I really love storytelling, the reason I didn't pursue that is because that's not what journalism is anymore. And that's not, uh, you can have hundreds of people who are interested in telling the stories of those who can't tell it for themselves, but that's not how the system works. And so of course those people are never going to be the ones whose stories go viral. Um, and I think I would, I would sit there and just be completely, frustrated and flabbergasted over the fact that people don't care. You know, people care more about money than they do about telling these stories. And so that's why I didn't go into journalism. But I think that this Timothy Thomas Fortune illustrates how, how integral journalism was, um, at the beginning of our country. And I, I hope that we can find our way back there because, um, particularly with the whole fake news craze and all of that. People distrust the media and people distrust journalists. Um, and in some part for good measure, you know, there, there are plenty of journalists out there who are doing great work, but there are even more who are Mm -hmm. doing, writing stories for the sensationalism. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's really frustrating, but I digress. Um, so The first poem that I selected by Timothy Thomas Fortune is called A False Maiden. It's in four parts. It's a little bit long, so bear with me. Okay, one. Here is the oak beneath whose friendly shade we spent one charming, fleeting summer day and talked the gathering gloom of woe away, duping ourselves that earth for us was made, a fairyland where we might hope and pray a a path of peaceful love before us lay, leading to some rare spot where ne'er could fade the vows for which we had so dearly paid. But all is changed, the oak remains as then, and I remain, but where, oh where, art thou? Gone, vanished as a vision, doubt I when I look around, if we as I do now, ere stood together here and dreamed that earth held other than a curse for our love's birth. Two. Yes, changes came in circumstance or fate, hath led us far apart and made the past, but as a memory, which yet will last, surviving all and bidding me to wait, and trust and brave the angry skies o'ercast, as storm-tossed sailors lash them to the mast, hoping against hope all will be well, and late but sure return me to my long-lost mate. So spreads the prospect to the anxious eye, so stilled is reason's cold but friendly voice, The storm-charged clouds may hide the gorgeous sky, but soon the sunshine comes and we rejoice. And love will hope when hope is bruised and dead, and all but memory of the past hath fled. 3. The dream has ended as a tale that's told. The past is dead, I dead, and nevermore. Shall you and I be as we were before? The dream, once young, grew commonplace and old. 
Whence vanished it, I, to what blissful shore? But still, the love that I for you once bore is warm and never, never can grow cold, e'en though you sell yourself for serpent gold. A thing that I have loved can I e'er hate. Not so, a sacred thing must it remain, while I through sun and shadow wait and wait. The coming of the hour when, free from pain, I pass away, as things of earth must do, true, even though you are, you are to me untrue. 4. Go then, I will not, would not, bid you to stay. Go, reap the agony and pain that lower, and ever lower upon the fatal hour, when selfishness alone points out the way that leads to love's retreat its sacred bower. Go, oh, remember, I have not the power, if you would go, to bid you longer stay. Leave me in life's fierce storm to bend and cower. True, I have loved you well and loved you long, and followed you where afar you went, followed in thought and silent prayer and song, Followed you still with hope and discontent. Enough, the fate's decree, the past is past. Know you, false one, it was too sweet to last. Oh, wow. I really liked that. <laughs> right? He has a lot of poetry that's available out there. And I liked it. Um, not all of his poems are about slavery. Mm-hmm. His poems are about love. His poems are about... That's why I ultimately chose Timothy Thomas Fortune, was because I wanted to be able to show that his poetry was multidimensional, and that I think a lot of the times in history, we tend to put the black story in the slavery, you know, box, mm-hmm. and it it's so much more multifaceted than that, so... Um, that's why I picked the false maiden poem in particular. I like it so, a lot. Um, okay, and then the second poem I selected is called Bartow Black, and this is actually the only poem on the Poetry Foundation website by Timothy Thomas Fortune. So, okay. here we go. And this one is about racial injustice. <laughs> um, okay. "'Twas when the proclamation came far in the 60s back, he left his lord and changed his name to Mr. Bartow Black. He learned to think himself a man and privileged, you know, to adopt a new and different plan to lay aside the hoe. He took the lead in politics and handled all the notes, for he was up to all the tricks that gather in the votes. For when the war came to a close and Negroes took a stand, young Bartow with the current rose the foremost in command. His voice upon the stump was heard, he Yankeedum did prate, the carpet-bagger he revered, the southerner, did hate. He now was greater than the lord, who used to call him slave, for he was on the county board, with every right to rave. But this amazing run of luck was far too good to stand, and soon the chivalrous Ku Klux rose in the southern land. Then Bartow got a little note, which was very queerly signed. It simply told him not to vote, or be to death resigned. Young Bartow thought this little game was very fine and nice, to bring his courage rare to shame and knowledge of justice. What right have they to think I fear, he to himself did say? Dare they presume that I do care how loudly they do bray? This is my home, and here I die, contending for my right. Then let them come, my colors fly, I'm ready now to fight. Let those who think that Bartow black, an office holder too, will to the cowards show his back, their vain presumption rue. Bartow perused his office game and made the money too, but home at nights he wisely came and played the husband true. When they had got their subject tame and well matured their plan, they at the hour of midnight came and armed was every man. 
they numbered fifty southern sons, and masked was every face, and Winfield rifles were their guns, you could that plainly trace. One southern brave did have a key, an entrance quick to make. They entered all but meek, you see, their victim not to wake. They reached his room, he was in bed, his wife was by his side. They struck a match above his head, his eyes he opened wide. Poor Bartow could not reach his gun, though quick his arm did stretch, for twenty bullets through him spun that stiffly laid the wretch. And then they rolled his carcass o'er and filled both sides with lead, and then they turned it on the floor and shot away his head. Ere black his bloody end did meet, his wife had swooned away. The southern braves did now retreat. There was no need to stay. You hit it on the head when you said <laughs> multidimensional. This is so mm-hmm. different than the first one you read. It's all like the way the, the words he chooses are more. It's something I would expect of a more modern piece. Mm-hmm. I. Wow. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, I, I liked him because, wow, okay, I just briefly looked up an analysis of this poem, and they go stanza by stanza. Oh, I'm sure. Um, well, and there's a lot to kind of unpack here, and I don't know that we necessarily have the time or the, you know, I don't know that we're necessarily the right people to do it, but... Right. I thought that it was a poem that really should be read and should be shared um, because he speaks kind of a raw truth, you know, and I think we're seeing it a little bit in the fact that, you know, since the Black Lives Matter um, movement has really taken off, there have been plenty and plenty of men strung up. Mm-hmm. who are being ruled as suicides when it's i i would say it's pretty clear that they've been lynched right you well, know and, there and that been... makes this poem so accessible because you could pluck this out of history plop it in today and nothing has changed exactly and how horrible is that you know <sighs> that's why we're doing this. <sighs> yeah so my next poet that I'm featuring is Charlotte L. Fortin Grimke, 1837 to 1914. And I got all of her information from the Poetry Foundation, Wikipedia, and BeltwayPoetry.com. Beautiful. Charlotte Louise Bridges Fortin Grimke, also known as Lottie, was an African-American anti-slavery activist, poet, and educator. She grew up in a prominent, prominent abolitionist family in Philadelphia. She taught school for years, including during the Civil War, to freed men in South Carolina. Later in life, she married Francis James Grimke, a a Presbyterian minister who led a major church in Washington, D.C. for decades. He was a nephew of the abolitionist Grimke sisters and was active in civil rights. Charlotte's diaries written before the end of the Civil War have been published in numerous editions and are significant as a rare record of the life of a free black woman in the antebellum North. In 1854, Charlotte attended the Higginson Grammar School, a private academy for young women. She was the only non-white student in a class of 200. Known for emphasis in critical thinking, the school had classes in history, geography, drawing, and cartography, and placed an emphasis on critical thinking skills. After Higginson, Fortin studied literature and and teaching at the Salem Normal School, which trained teachers. She cited William Shakespeare, John Milton, Margaret Fuller, and William Wordsworth as some of her favorite authors. Her first teaching position was at Epps Grammar School in Salem, 
becoming the first African-American hired to teach white students in a Salem public school. Charlotte became a member of the Salem Female Anti-Slavery Society, where she was involved in coalition building and fundraising. She proved to be influential as an activist and leader on civil rights. In 1892, her, Helen Cook, Ida B. Bailey, Anna Julia Cooper, Mary Jane Peterson, Mary Church Terrell, and Evelyn Shaw formed the Colored Women's League in Washington, D.C. The goals of the service-oriented club were to promote unity, social progress, and the best interests of the African-American community. In 1896, Charlotte assisted in starting the National Association of Colored Women. In addition, she arranged for lectures by prominent speakers and writers, including Ralph Waldo Emerson and Senator Charles Sumner. She was acquainted with many other anti-slavery proponents, including William Lloyd Garrison, editor of The Liberator, and the orators and activists Wendell Phillips, Maria Weston Chapman, and William Wells Brown. In 1856, Charlotte took a teaching position at Epps Grammar School in Salem. She was well-received as a teacher, but returned to Philadelphia, Philadelphia after two years due to tuberculosis. At this point, she began writing poetry, much of which was activist in theme. Her poetry is published in the Liberator and Anglo-African magazine. Following the war in the late 1860s, she worked for the U.S. Treasury Department in Washington, D.C., recruiting teachers. In 1872, she taught at Paul Lawrence Dunbar High School. One year later, she became a clerk in the Treasury Department. Charlotte's last literary effort was in response to the evangelist editorial, Relations of Blacks and Whites, Is There a Color Line in New England? It asserted that blacks were not discriminated against in New England society. She responded that black Americans achieved success over extraordinary social odds and they simply wanted fair and respectful treatment. Charlotte was a regular journal writer until she returned north after teaching in South Carolina. After her return, her entries were less frequent, although she wrote about her daughter's death and her busy life with her husband. Her journals are a rare example of documents detailing the life of a freed black female in the antebellum north. In her diary, Charlotte made one of the earliest record recorded references to, quote, the blues as a sad or depressed state of mind. She was teaching in South Carolina at the time and wrote that she came home from a church service with the blues because she felt very lonesome and pitied myself. She soon got over her sadness and later noted certain songs, including one called Poor Rosie, that were popular among the slaves. She admitted that she could not describe the manner of singing, but she did write that the songs, quote, can't be sung without a full heart and a troubled spirit. Those conditions inspired countless blues songs and could be described as the essence of blues singing. She stayed active writing and speaking about the black community until her death in 1914. I picked um, Charlotte L. Fort and Grimke mainly because um, she was one of the few poets that I found that started off as a, in a prominent abolitionist family. Um, she in no means uh, experienced the life of an enslaved woman neither did her family, they did not want for money or resources, and I wanted to highlight the role she played at a more executive position. Um, you know, teaching, working at the U.S. Treasury, and founding all of these incredible foundations and funds. Um, mm -hmm. So I just wanted to highlight somebody who was who contributed to the black community from poets and writing and funds from a, a different point of view than an actual enslaved person. I love that. Um, her first poem that I selected is called A Parting Hymn. When winter's royal robes of white from hill and vale are gone, and the glad voices of the spring upon the air are borne, friends who have met with us before within these walls shall meet no more. Forth to a noble work they go, oh, may their hearts keep pure, and hopeful zeal and strength be theirs to labor and endure, that they in earnest faith may prove by words of truth and deeds of love. 
May those whose holy task it is to guide impulsive youth fail not to cherish in their souls a reverence for truth, for teachings which the lips impart must save their source within the heart. May all who suffer share their love, the poor and the oppressed, so shall the blessing of our God upon their labors rest. And may we meet again where all are blessed and freed from every thrall. I pick this poet poem because it reminds me of Paddle Your Own Canoe in that it centers around like departures and moving forward. But this was much more biblically centered and was just a, you know, it was a woman's view of that departure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I like her rhyming scheme, actually. It is very, like, it threw me off at first, but once you, like, get in the groove, it's very different. I like it a lot. I've, yeah, I like it a lot. My next poem that I selected from her is a, a little bit longer. Um, That's okay. It is called The Angel's Visit. "'Twas on a glorious, a glorious summer eve, a lovely eve in June, serenely from her home above looked down the gentle moon, and lovingly she smiled on me and softly soothed the pain, the aching heavy pain that lay upon my heart and brain. And gently mid the murmuring leaves, scarce by its light wings stirred, like spirit voices soft and clear, the night wind's song was heard. In strains of music, sweet and low, it sang to me of peace, it bade my weary, troubled soul her sad complainings cease. For bitter thoughts had filled my breast, and sad and sick at heart, I longed to lay me down and rest from all the world apart. Outcast, oppressed on earth, I cried, O Father, take me home, O take me to that peaceful land beyond the moonlit dome. On such a night as this, methought, angelic forms are near, in beauty unrevealed to us, they hover in the air. O mother loved and lost, I cried, methinks thou art near me now, methinks I feel thy cooling touch upon my burning brow. O guide and soothe thy sorrowing child, and if tis not his will, that thou shouldst take me home with thee, protect and bless me still. For dark and drear had been my life, without thy tender smile, without a mother's loving care, each sorrow to beguile. I ceased, then o'er my senses stole, a soothing dreaming spell, and gently to my ear were borne the tones I loved so well. A sudden flood of rosy light filled all the dusky wood, and clad in shining robes of white, my angel mother stood. She gently drew me to her side and pressed her lips to mine, and softly said, Grieve not, my child, a mother's love is thine. I know the cruel wrongs that crush the young and ardent hearts, but falter not, keep bravely on, and nobly bear thy part. For thee a brighter's days in store, and every earnest soul that presses on with purpose high shall gain the wished-for goal. And though, beloved, faint not beneath the weary weight of care, daily before our Father's throne I breathe for thee a prayer. I pray that pure and holy thoughts may bless and guard thy way, a noble and unselfish life for thee, my child, I pray. She paused and fondly bent on me one lingering look of love then softly said and passed away farewell we'll meet above i woke and still the silver moon in quiet beauty shone and still i heard amid the leaves the night wind's murmuring tone but from my heart the weary pain forevermore had flown i know a mother's prayer for me was breathed before the throne Whew. right i got i love that I that is gorgeous goose, yeah i got goosebumps when i read it I, i've read it like 18 times I have to say, uh, this this little research project that we've been doing, 
makes me feel like I'm not a poet. <laughs> Girl, I ain't never felt like I was a poet. I thought I was a poet. I was like, oh my god, I'm like a, like I'm, like I'm a, all I can think of is like Manic Pixie Dream Girl, which is like not right, but like, I don't know. I've always, like, my poetry is what happens when I try to put my brain into words and this is like true art you know and but I would say like just uh, like art everyone has their point of view and their their own interpretations so to look at this and say you're not a poet I think would not be fair this doesn't make you not a poet you know everyone has their own style but don't get me wrong I will never write something as beautiful beautiful it's so beautiful yeah and I I think the key there, though, is that it's beautiful in different ways. You know, your perspective is, I think your perspective is beautiful, but it's, it's a different perspective than this. Right. You know, and just because it's different doesn't make it less beautiful. Correct. For you. As well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I picked this poem mainly because obviously it was beautiful, but one, I'm pretty sure that like the rhythm and the comforting words were meant to mimic a lullaby as if her mother mm-hmm. was like singing to her to sleep. I could see that. And oh that, my gosh, there you go. That I is that. Charlotte Grimke. And of course, I really, really like her poetry. There were so many. I, I, there was one I found. It was like nine poems of Charlotte Grimke.com or something. And I had a hard time picking like they yeah. were so beautiful. So, on that note, listeners, you should definitely go out and read more of the poetry yes. by these four incredible poets that we have featured today, and other black poets from the 17 and 1800s that you should explore are Lucy Terry Prince, Jupiter Hammond, George Moses Horton, Francis Ellen Watkins Harper, James Monroe Whitfield, Samuel Wright, Paul Lawrence Dunbar, who I almost did, um, he was one of, if, if I'm not mistaken, he was the first African-American professor at a university, which gotcha. I thought was interesting. Um, Charles Lewis Reason, Joshua McCarter Simpson, Harriet Jacobs, Henrietta Cordelia Ray, Daniel Rebst- Webster Davis, James Edwin Campbell, and Elemis Payson Rogers. So... Um, like we said at the beginning of this episode, we'll go ahead and post all of those names on our website and give you links to their Poetry Foundation websites or other websites as needed. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think like we said, this is, this is meant to showcase voices that may not have been heard already. Um, and we want you to take this time to educate yourself and, and learn more about, um, poets that you might not have explored before. I had heard of Phyllis Wheatley, but I didn't know her poetry, really. I didn't know her story. Um, and actually, I had never heard of the other three that we we featured today, so I'm, mm-hmm. I'm glad we're doing this. I think it'll be interesting. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to finishing off this mini-series, um, which the next episode, we're going to focus on the Harlem Renaissance, which I think is going to be really fun. Yes! Langston Hughes! Yes. And, yeah, Langston, I mean, I, I did Langston Hughes in one of the mini-series, or one of the mini I know you did. I know um, you he's did. He's one of my favorites. So, oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, thank you guys for tuning in. Um, our next episode should be a lyrics episode, um, and then 
Hopefully you can join us for We Have Always Lived in the Castle by Shirley Jackson. Um, and then we'll be back with another another episode in this little mini-series that yeah. we're doing. Let us know if you have a favorite black poet, order, educator, literary genius. Love to know why you like them and why you think they should be featured on the show. Exactly. Um, send those in to readthosevines at gmail.com. Hey, hey. Um, we also have a contact form on our website, so if you go to readbetweenthevines.blog, there is a contact form. It's actually on the front page. Just scroll all the way to the bottom, mm-hmm. um, and you can you can let us know your thoughts, and we'll be happy to feature them. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, remember that love is love, science matters, and so does so do black lives. Exactly. And we'll see you at the next episode of the miniseries. <laughs>